The reality is an idea and even a patent and frankly, even an early prototype doesn't have a whole lot of value from an investor's perspective. Investors are looking things through a purely financial lens. So we want things de-risked, pretty much all directionally pointing towards market adoption. Welcome to another episode of MedTech Mindset. I'm your host, Dan Henrich, and I'm Director of Marketing at Archimedic. If you're a regular listener to our show, you know we recently joined teams at SmithWise with our friends and partners at Catapult Product Development. So we're excited to be moving forward together now as one organization under the Archimedic banner. We have a great topic and guest for you today, and we've been saving this one for our first episode under our new name. I got to sit down recently with Adam Dakin, Managing Director of Dream It Health, to talk about raising capital and what it takes to get funded in medtech these days. Now, Adam is a fascinating guy to talk with, and he has a lot of great experience, so I couldn't cut our conversation down from an hour to just 30 or 40 minutes. Instead, we'll be releasing this interview in two episodes, one week apart. If you enjoy this show today, be sure to come back for part two. It's just as good. Let's get to it. Hey, Adam, how are you today? Doing great, thanks. Great. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. Um, funding is a topic that we've wanted to, to cover uh, you know, early on in this series. Almost every one of, uh, of the medtech entrepreneurs we talk to is, is struggling to raise funding to get their project off the ground. Um, but before we get into it, maybe can you tell us a little bit about um, DreamIt and your role there? Uh, sure. So real briefly, my background, um, uh, and thanks so much for this opportunity. It's, it's delighted to chat, chat with you. Uh, so my background, I, I've been doing early stage health tech companies really almost since I got out of school. So 25 plus years, started out in sales. Uh, but since then, uh, I've co-founded five health tech companies, served as the CEO of three of those, raised a lot of venture capital across those five companies. Some of those companies went well, some of them did not. Uh, so I, I have both perspectives. Uh, and then uh, about a year and a half ago, I moved really from a career as an operator to the uh, investment side. Mm -hmm. And so I joined Dream Adventures, which is a venture fund located in Philadelphia. Uh, Our focus is uh, digital health and med tech. Uh, We've been around for over 10 years. We've uh, worked with over 130 companies in the health tech space. Our model is a little bit different than traditional venture uh, in that we run what you might loosely describe as an accelerator alongside of our venture fund. Mm-hmm. That accelerator exists for the sole purpose of generating deal flow into our venture fund. Mm-hmm. And we only invest in companies that go through that program. We are super selective. We take 3% of companies in that apply to that program. So in the health tech vertical, we work with about 15 to 20 companies a year. We have urban tech and secure tech verticals as well. Model is exactly the same in those verticals. Um, but what is unique about us compared to other programs or accelerators is we don't take a big chunk of equity up front. There's no co-location involved. Mm-hmm. Um, I prefer to describe us more as a sleeves up venture fund because we work very intimately with those select companies that come into the program. And we are all about helping them acquire customers. We have an incredible stakeholder network of over 30 enterprise healthcare partners, payers, large multinationals, big pharma partners who know how well vetted and well prepared our companies are. So they're willing to engage very closely with those companies. So we're getting access to decision makers for them 
to accelerate commercial relationships. Uh, and then our second, second big value add is access to capital. We reach out to over a thousand venture funds each cycle. Again, those funds know we're only bringing them the best of the best. Mm-hmm. So they look very closely at each cohort and then they decide which companies within that cohort they want to get face to face with. Most of our teams will get 15 to 25 face-to-face meetings with venture funds across a two-week period that we call mm-hmm. investor sprints. Mm-hmm. Our track record's pretty good. Over half of our companies will close around within six months of getting through the DreamIt program. And then we will co-invest in the vast majority of those programs. That's pretty important for us because if we don't co-invest, we don't get paid. Sure. You've kind of gone through the program for free yeah. if we never write a check. That aligns interests very nicely between us and the founders of the company. Great, great. So one of the reasons we thought you'd be such a great guest is, um, you know, just that fact that you've been on both sides of the pitch table a bunch of times. Um, And so we want to just give people an idea of, uh, you know, realistic expectations, uh, what it's like to be, you know, pitching, pitching your med tech company and how you have to think about the investor's perspective as, as you go through that process. So. Um, but maybe before we jump into what to do and what to expect in, in fundraising, can we just talk about kind of the trend of, of um, you know, current funding in med tech and um, digital health and, you know, how, how has that changed, if, if at all, in, in recent years? Uh, sure. So uh, the reality is it's gotten tough to, for early stage med tech companies to raise capital. Mm-hmm. Um there are a number of headwinds that the space has faced in the last few years. Um, so, you know, there are fewer acquirers now than there used to be. So when I started out 25 years ago, if you were orthopedics or you were a cardiovascular company, you know, there was a hit list of 20, 25 companies that would acquire you. Uh, mm-hmm. And they would acquire you relatively early. You could have just a limited amount of human data, maybe a little bit of IP around uh, your concept, and the big guys were willing to come in and go, we get it, you proved at least it works, we'll take it here, we'll take it from here, you know, here's a nice check. You, know, you may not have raised all that much capital at that point, so exits in the 50 or $100 million range were still very, pretty nice exits for your investors, right? Mm-hmm. They were still getting a nice multiple mm-hmm. on their invested capital. Mm-hmm. So... What changed? Well, a few things. First, the uni- there's been so much consolidation in the med tech space that now, if you're worth PD's cardiovascular or other spaces, there might be five buyers for you. Yeah. Right? Well, value, the real value creation comes from creating an auction. You get something far enough along that you can get several acquirers interested in buying you, and that's what obviously bids up the price. So, fewer buyers, supply and demand. It's just tougher to get the valuations and the exits that we used to be able to get. The other force is that these companies are waiting to buy things at much later stages. So they're not willing to take a lot of that early risk, right? right? They want things de-risked much further than they used to. They're willing to pay a bigger price for it, but they don't want to take clinical, regulatory, market risk the way that they used to. Mm -hmm. That's because they got burned. There were so many bad acquisitions of early stage med tech companies over the last 20 years that if you're somebody in business development at a big company like Medtronic, do you want to take career risk on something that's not really proven? Probably not, Mm -hmm. right? You'd rather, 
you know, you, you don't want to underpay for something that doesn't work. You'd much rather overpay for something that does. Sure. Right. So the mindset has really shifted. What are the implications of that? As investors, we know we're going to be in it for the long haul, right? We're not likely to get a quick exit. We're going to have, it's going to be a much more capital intensive process to get that company to the milestones where it becomes uh, an attractive acquisition. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the reasons why it's gotten really tough for early stage investors, right? Assuming you're not going to get an early exit, and that's a very dangerous assumption that a lot of entrepreneurs make, we're going to need a lot more capital along the way. So if you come in early, you're, you are at risk for heavy dilution. And it only takes one ugly financing along the way to essentially wipe out or greatly diminish the equity stake for the early investors, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So as an early investor, you take clinical risk, you take product risk, regulatory risk, but you're also taking huge financing risk. Because if that company has trouble raising capital in the next round, I mean, worst case, they don't raise capital, your investment gets wiped out. Or they raise capital, but they do it on what might be perceived as very harsh terms, you're going to get heavily diluted, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And your equity stake will get either wiped out or or dramatically reduced, mm-hmm. right? So unfortunately, those are some of the factors that have really made it less interesting. The other big factor is that large sucking sound you hear is the money moving over to digital health, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Why is that? So digital health require is it's a lot less capital intensive. We just talked about med tech. It's capital intensive, right? If most medical devices, if I'm going to take them all the way from development through clinical trial, through regulatory approval, through market launch, right? All those are expensive. Um, and there's a lot of money to be spent before I even know if my product actually works, right? right? So I don't even get to turn the first card over in terms of does it work and is there product market fit until I've spent a significant amount of money probably over several years, right? That's very different from software. Right, mm-hmm. a couple of guys who are smart with a couple of laptops can build, a, you know, an MVP type product pretty quickly, right? And you can assess that, uh, and so it's been alluring for investors to go sure. into a space where they think, oh, the time to market short. It's a lot less capital intensive. These guys will be selling, you know, a few million dollars of capital there in the market. And while that's true, there's a flip side to that, which I think a lot of investors who are health tech investors, but maybe not experienced digital health investors don't understand, because you give that back on the sales side. The sales cycles are very long in digital health. Mm-hmm. I mean, it because is you're selling not- you hospital systems and- It's an enterprise, right? it's a system sale, yeah. right? Medical devices generally have a relatively small universe of decision makers, and it's a very reasonably well-defined process in terms of what the hospital has to do, which committees they have to go through, what budget you have to get approved in. Um, so it's not fast, but at least it's reasonably well-defined. Yeah. Enterprise, selling, to an, selling software to an enterprise healthcare system, we say when you've sold to one enterprise healthcare system, you've sold to one enterprise healthcare system. The problem is it's not a scalable sales cycle. Mm -hmm. So it's a constellation of so many different stakeholders that touch you because it's software, right? So it might be the patient. It might be the family. It might be the head chair, the clinicians in the department. 
but it almost inevitably includes the IT department, yep. right? Where things go to die. <laughs> we, <laughs> exactly right. We call that the wood chipper of digital health, right? Yeah. Because you see that long line down the hallway? That's the line of companies waiting for their product to get integrated into the EHR. Uh, I was just talking um, to one CIO. I was asking him, what's the timeline look like? He said, at a large Philadelphia-based enterprise healthcare system, 12 to 18 months if you need a full integration. Now, that can be accelerated. If somebody high up wants to move you to the top of the pile, it can be done more quickly. But if you just walk into the IT department and say, we need this integrated. And they say, great, we'll put you on the list. We'll talk to you in a year, mm-hmm. right? Because almost every healthcare system is doing some sort of large-scale Epic, Cerner, large EHR integration, and that's where they're focused. So helping a small company or a startup integrate, not on their priority list. So I think that's frustrating for a lot of investors who go in thinking, oh, this is software. This is a SaaS-type business model great margins. We'll just run out to the market because this solution is so clever and innovative and solves a real problem, which it very well may. But the process of adoption is very slow because so many stakeholders have to weigh in. One of our companies in their CRM had 30 different decision makers that they were managing every single day to get through the sales cycle at that hospital. That's, that's a pretty heavy lift. And by the way, of those 30, five had veto power. So at <laughs> sure. any moment through that sales cycle, if one person raised their hand and said, I'm out, the sale was over. That's like walking through raindrops. I mean, sure. that's a difficult sales, <laughs> sales process, sure. which unfortunately a lot of investors don't appreciate. And ultimately that actually creates some tension between the investors and the management team, which may be a conversation for another day, but it suggests that entrepreneurs should be thoughtful about who they bring in as investors and who they have on their board. A quick break here to remind our listeners that MedTech Mindset is a production of Archimedic, a full-service medical device developer helping innovators who are struggling with technical, commercial, regulatory, or manufacturing challenges accelerate their next new products along the path to market. Our clients span established device manufacturers, top-tier academic hospitals, and venture-backed startups. Learn more at Archimedic.com. So do you think there'll be a pendulum swing, you know, back towards the middle or back towards medtech? So I'm very optimistic, actually, because medtech solves, you know, there, there's generally a clearly defined clinical problem. You're targeting that. Um, so, yeah, I think... And once you, you know, show that your product can actually improve patient outcomes, it's pretty, pretty straightforward type of business case to make, right? That's right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's easier to define the impact on outcomes. One of the things we talk about not so much in med tech is ROI, right? Return on investment. If you talk to a digital health company, you cannot get 10 minutes in without saying, what's the ROI and what's the impact on workflow? How does it fit the system? And how can you quantify if, if the healthcare system sends a dollar on you, they'll get five back. We don't really have those discussions in med tech so much. Because it's really much more about the clinical outcome. And if there's a really compelling, dramatic patient benefit or provider benefit, they sort of stipulate that there's a, an economic benefit. Now, that said, it's, there's still a burden on companies to prove that medical economic benefit, but it's generally a little bit more straightforward. So, yeah, I think right now, actually, because of the forces we talked about, 
the reality is med tech company valuations have gotten very depressed. Mm-hmm. And if I put my investor hat on, that creates an opportunity to invest in companies at what feels like relatively low valuations. And the exact opposite is happening on the digital health side. Okay. The valuations have gotten, in my opinion, ridiculously inflated. Pre-revenue companies that we talk to have a swagger and an attitude around what they think their valuation should be before they've sold one dime of product to anybody, right? So, and they are raising money at those valuations, which is great for them, for the founders, not so great for us as disciplined investors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Um, that's, I think that's a great way to, to, to frame this discussion. Um, so can we talk maybe about um, ballpark valuations for you know, a, a young med tech company at, you know, before they reach the, their various milestones of, of de-risking their device on the way to market, right? So <clears throat> often when we talk with, with um, you know, med tech entrepreneurs, they've really put their heart and soul into a particular project, perhaps for, you know, for years, uh, but that gives them a very different and perhaps inflated perspective on the value of their idea versus how investors in the outside world is going to see the, the value of their of their idea and their project. So, um, you know, say we have a, a device. It's a it's you know going to come to market through a five ten k pathway, but it's uh, you know it's connected. It's got sort of maybe a digital health element to it. Um, it's fairly fairly complex. Um, and it's going to be, say, used to remotely monitor a chronic disease. So it's not a simple uh, uh, path to market. This is a pretty pretty complex development process. You're filing for your provisional patent. What's that idea worth to an investor at that point? Right. So look, as investors, we get the fact that entrepreneurs are passionate. You know, they're all in. Um, it's a very emotional connection to the intellectual property or the idea that they've developed and they have a vision and hopefully that vision is you know goes beyond the financial returns it really is a commitment i mean we're in health because we want to help people right that's why most people come that's why most inventors you know dedicate themselves to to these types of inventions the reality is an idea and even a patent and frankly even an early prototype doesn't have a whole lot of value from an investor's perspective. That doesn't mean it doesn't have value. It has a lot of value. Mm-hmm. But investors are looking things through a purely financial lens, right? At the end of the day, we're going to put capital in and we're going to take capital out. And we want a significant multiple on that capital, right? So we want things de-risked pretty much all directionally pointing towards market adoption. Right. What's the process to how much is it going to cost and how much time is it going to take to get it into the market? And then what's it going to prove that the market will buy it and use it? Right. Mm -hmm. And the reality is an idea, even a patent and even a prototype doesn't really help us de-risk that. Right. What we need to understand is how much time, how long is it going to take? What is the process? What's the regulatory risk? What's the clinical risk? You know, how, and then at the end of the day, we're really trying to figure out, well, you know, what's the market adoption going to look like, right? So lots of factors come into that. How big is the market? What's the potential profit 
pro- margins on your particular product, right? What's the what's the sales cycle look like, uh, etc. Are there are there cost effective distribution channels for this stuff, right? That that all comes into play. We see a lot of med tech stuff that's really interesting, but it has no sort of economic distribution channel, no way to get to the market cost effectively. That's mm-hmm. a problem, right? Mm-hmm. That's particularly true for low cost sort of accessory type items that have mm-hmm. potentially a lot of value, but you can't justify direct sales force to sell right. those products, which means you're forced to find a channel partner on day one, mm-hmm. right? Well, if you're finding a channel partner, they're going to take a big chunk of the margin, right? And they may or not be committed to effectively selling and marketing your product. So there's a lot of distribution risk for those types of companies. So there's a lot of de-risking to be done. The idea, the prototype, the IP, that is the very beginning of a long journey of de-risking the technology. Sure, sure. So it sounds like you know a, a VC firm obviously is not going to typically get involved at, at this point right, in, in investing. So where's that money coming from? Yeah, at when that you're stage? at when you're at that stage, that's founder money, that's friends and family money who are generally investing in you. Mm-hmm. They believe in the team. Yes, they believe in them. They probably buy into the market opportunity and your vision. But at that point, as I said, there's little of substantive value from a professional investor standpoint. Mm -hmm. So it's really friends and family at that point. Once you get a little bit further, and at least you have some, let's say some bench data, right? Then you can start thinking about grant funding. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, you're probably- we'll call that milestone two maybe. You know, you you have a, a, a working prototype proving out technical feasibility and you've got some bench data to maybe show that it it meets the meets the um, standards for the you know predicate device maybe right yeah exactly so that sort of brings you to the sttr sbir potential yeah. right for funding to yep. get it to that next next level um, so you know then where do you go from there right what are i mean at the end of the day most professional investors want some evidence that the product actually works and somebody's actually going to buy it, mm-hmm. right? So in the med tech universe, that's generally, not always, but that's generally at minimum some compelling animal data. Really, it's first in human data, right? Mm-hmm. That is usually the big trigger. And by the way, concurrent with that first in human data, hopefully, there are some clinicians who are nodding their heads going, I used it and I really like it and it seemed right. like it works, right? Right. That's a huge de-risking milestone. And we talk to a lot of companies who, I don't think they understand that they need to be laser focused on getting there on as little capital as possible because they're thinking, oh, we got to get the 510K, we got to get regulatory approval, we got to do all these things. And of course the 510K or the PMA is a very important milestone, it doesn't matter if it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Like spend your focus and your limited dollars building a product that works and people love. Mm-hmm. Right? You need to understand what the regulatory pathway is. Absolutely. And if you're not an expert in regulatory or 
there isn't a really clearly defined pathway. You need to work with people who are experienced and, and understand how to build a regulatory strategy. But in the beginning, it, you have to be laser focused on building something that actually works and creating at least a small body of data to support its efficacy and safety. Yeah. yeah. So I guess another important thing to, to point out there then is that you know, if you have regulatory approval, right, that's the FDA giving you your stamp saying this works to some level, right? You can treat a condition with this, but that doesn't mean it works better than the standard of care, right? That doesn't mean that there's a, that it works for a, for a, an investor or for a clinician to the level that there's, there's market demand for it, right? Yeah, exactly right. right. So there's two critical... So let's call that milestone three. Milestone you have regulatory three. approval, uh, but... Um, but. So, so the reality is it does not prove that it works, right? It, you can get a five ten, you can get a lot of five ten Ks, right, with no clinical data whatsoever. I right. showed it was from a benchtop standpoint, it's equivalent to a predicate device. Right. That doesn't mean it works. That means, I guess what I mean is that the, the, the standard right from FDA is if you get it regulatory approval, that means the FDA has said you've you've shown to our satisfaction that this is uh, this is safe and effective. But that's not their standard of effective is not the same as what you're saying that this device so works. It, you're right. Right. if you get a PMA, you are correct. You have shown to the FDA's satisfaction that your device is safe and effective. If you get a 510K, you've shown that you are substantially equivalent to a predicate device. Right. That predicate device may or may not be safe and effective, but it was cleared by the FDA before 1976, you know, uh, strange set of laws, right? Kind of bizarre how this whole 510K system works and it's all based on predicate devices. Right. But I think your bigger point is the important one, which is getting regulatory approval does not provide validation of market acceptance right. at exactly. all. Exactly. It doesn't prove that people will want to use it. It also doesn't prove at all that you'll get paid for it. It's a prerequisite. Yeah. People won't use it and you won't get paid for it if you don't have regulatory clearance. But the converse is not true. Just because you have that doesn't mean people will use it. And that's really the biggest de-risking component that institutional investors are, are focused on, mm-hmm. right? That's, that's what they want to see. Okay. So say we've cleared milestone three, which is, you know, we have regulatory approval and, uh, and therefore we're able to conduct, you know, post-market clinical, you know, data collection, right? Um, then is that the point at which institutional investors may really become involved? And what do you call that from a serious perspective? Yeah, I mean, so the reality of where we are today in the funding cycles um, in the med tech space is the vast majority of investors want to see their money going toward commercialization. Right. So, while you might not necessarily be on the eve of commercialization, you know, you haven't hired sales guys, the manufacturing plant's not chugging away for, uh, you know, spitting out products and then creating inventory for three shifts a day, right? You might not be at that point, but investors want line of sight to that. They want to believe that my money is going to get you to that point, and at least you'll be funded for an initial market entry. That's where we'll break for part one. 
If you haven't already, subscribe to our show so you don't forget to come back for part two. Adam's got some more great advice on its way for medtech innovators in next week's episode. MedTech Mindset is a production of Archimedic and is produced in our Philadelphia office. Our theme music is composed, performed, and personally curated by the Polish ambassador. Thanks again to Adam Dakin for being our guest, and thanks to you for listening. We'll catch you next time on MedTech Mindset.